good to see you all here tonight. Um, we're going to read from God's Word. As Andrew said, we're looking at Job. We'll just begin by reading um, three verses from Job chapter 2. So that's Job 2, 11 to 13. And after we've read that, we're going to move on to Job 22 from verse 1. So first of all then, Job chapter 2, verse 11 to verse 13. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize them. They began to recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. And then Job chapter 22 from verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, Can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise man benefit himself? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What would he gain if your ways were blameless? It is for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you. Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your brothers for no reason. You stripped men of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry, though you were a powerful man owning land, an honoured man living on it. And you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you. Why sudden peril terrifies you? Why it is so dark you cannot see? And why a flood of water covers you? Let's come and pray. Father, we just think again of the totally overwhelming situation that Job was in. and Lord, we, we pray that you'll give us understanding maybe not understanding fully of all his circumstances, but understanding of how we should react when we see someone in some kind of terrible situation like this or when we ourselves find ourselves in that place. Lord, give us understanding of where we should turn and how we should react. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so those of you who are here last week will know that we began a series on Job. And we looked in, in that first introduction to Job at some principles and at some personality. The principles being that ultimately all suffering is rooted in man's sin. That it's man's sin, man's decision to sin, that introduced evil, suffering, and all that goes along with that into a world that God created to be perfect and good. And God had to make us with the freedom to choose to sin. For without that freedom, we could not be said to freely choose to love. 
So you see, for God to have created a world without the possibility of sin, that would have meant God would also have had to have created a world without the possibility of real love. And that, you see, God cannot do. For that's inconsistent with his character. That is inconsistent with who God is. Now that's the general principle. But it doesn't answer the question as to why particular people suffer in the way that they do. And indeed, I believe one of the main purposes, if not the main purpose of Job, is not in trying to give general simplistic answers to people who are suffering. Rather, as a writer I quoted to you last week, as he says, Job does not give us an exhaustive catalogue of reasons as to why suffering happens. It's more concerned to explain how to act towards God when suffering happens. Now, these are just some of the principles we looked at last time. But we did also look at at some personalities. We looked at Job, who we saw was blameless, a man of true faith and real integrity, and a man who is blessed by God in every way because of the kind of man he was. And of course, so Satan came in and said then that, that Job only worshipped God because of what God had given him. Job's reaction, however, when everything, including his health, was taken from him, proved just how wrong Satan was. For though Job felt what he'd suffered and felt it deeply, yet still Job turned to God. Still Job held on to God, demonstrating as he did so that deep in his heart lay a knowledge of God, lay a knowledge of God's love for him, that enabled him to keep on loving and to keep on serving God, no matter what life brought his way. But there were two other main characters who were introduced in the the first two introduced in the first two chapters of Job. We're not saying about Job's wife. We said enough last time. But the first of these two was was Satan. Satan, who, as we saw, has power, has real power on this earth. But his power, though real, is also limited in that it is as, no, as nothing in comparison to God's almighty, sovereign power. Satan also has a purpose. And that's brought out into the opening, Job 2, verse 3. And it is our ruin. That's what Satan's about. He wants to ruin our faith. He wants to ruin our relationship with God. He wants to ruin our testament. And he'll do whatever he can. He'll do whatever he needs to do to do that. The final personality is God. God, who is love and who loves us with a love beyond our understanding. God, who is a God of power, of sovereign, almighty power. And God, who also has a purpose for us. God who wants us in this life to grow in faith, to grow in holiness, to grow in love. God who wants to use this life and all that this life brings us to make us more like Jesus and so prepare us for the life to come. The big question then is, in life's hardships, who are we going to turn to? Is Satan going to get us 
to give in? Is he going to achieve his aim? Is he going to use these things that we endure in life to destroy us? Or are we going to turn to God? God who wants to take all the different experiences of our life, including the hardships of life, who wants to take them into his sovereign purposes, use them to refine us and to prepare us to be with him in heaven. The final point we made last time is that God doesn't just speak to us about suffering, but rather that God in Jesus Christ, he stands with us in our suffering. And this is the God who wants us to turn to him in what we suffer in life. Well, this week we're going to move on to the the main central section of this book. And and in this, this main section, there's a a change in style, first of all. We move on from narrative, from story, to poetry, with a fair bit of philosophy thrown in. Now, this involves, at times, um, some pretty elaborate, at times even flowery, use of language. And it also involves some rather complex argument. In fact, I was interested, Charles Swindoll defines a philosopher like this. He says, a philosopher is a person who talks about things he doesn't understand, but who makes it sound as if it's your fault. And the the structure of Job here is repetitive. It involves three rounds of arguments from the three friends, with Job's responses interspersed. In fact, so far, he only speaks twice. You, You almost get the impression that even he's frustrated and just gave up. And then finally, there's a a contribution from a a young man, Elihu, who you can almost picture as you read this, has been sitting on the sidelines, who's been forced by courtesy, by their custom, to let the old men have their say. But all the while, he's been bursting to break in, to put his bit in, to put the world to rights, as can sometimes be the way of young men. But because, you see, of, of all of this, Because the differences between chapters here is at times very subtle, very subtle developments in arguments. And because I don't want you to do what I told you last time one congregation did when their pastor finished a long sermon in Job, that is break out in spontaneous applause. Because of this, I've decided just to try and deal with Job chapter 3 to chapter 27 in two sermons. There you go. This week concentrating on the friend's contribution and next week looking more at Job's response. You see, what I'm going to try and do is is pick out, just kind of tease out for you from these chapters what's most important and what's practical and relevant and just say it once instead of the three friends saying again and again. So let's look first then tonight at Job's friends, focusing first on the problem on the problem and the problem is that that these men who let's not forget had many admirable qualities they left their homes traveled to be with Job and they sat silent by his side for seven days and seven nights when they saw the depth of his suffering that you see demonstrates to me that these were faithful men these were men of real commitment these weren't superficial fly-by-night 
type of characters. Now, these were men who, when they gave themselves to something or to someone, well, they really did give of themselves. But they did have a problem, a real problem, right at the very heart of who they were. Let's just try and unpack what it was. First, they did take generalities as absolutes. You see, they, they took that principle that we talked of earlier and they then applied it in a wooden, kind of literalistic way to Job's particular situation. You know the kind of thing, listen, Job, all suffering ultimately is, is rooted in sin. So Job, you particularly, you specifically must have done something to deserve these agonies that now you're going through. It's a bit like that song from the, the Sound of Music. Do you remember the Sound of the Music? It was one of the agonies of my childhood being taken to see that film. They wouldn't let me go and see Ben Hur because they thought it would damage me, but they took me to the Sound of Music. What did I ever do to deserve that? It still lives with me. But it's that song in the Sound of Music that Maria sings after she and the captain have declared their love for one another. But it's given a twist by Job's friends. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in your youth or childhood, Job, you must have done something not good, bad. Now, at the beginning, in, in their first speeches, they, they attempt to suggest this gently and, and subtly. They try to cushion it by admitting that Job has been a caring man. For example, Eliphaz in chapter 4, verse 4. Your words have supported those who stumble. You have strengthened faltering knees. And also, he's been a truly godly man. Verse 6. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? But still, you see, the inference is there. And it becomes more than an inference as we go through this. That Job is suffering because Job has sinned. That there is something specific in his life that has brought this calamity upon him. Chapter 4, verse 17. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more? those who live in houses of clay. And then chapter 5, verse 17. Blessed is the man whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. Now let me just again make it clear that there is a lot that is right in what Job's friends say. For sin is in general, at the root of suffering. And God does discipline his people. But the problem is that they are trying to take these general principles and apply them specifically, apply them as absolute to Job. And that's just not so. It's just not right. It's not right, though, because there are many times when we find someone suffering in a way that no way relates to their sin or to any real need for that kind of discipline in their life. As was the case here for Job. 
He was a good man. He was a godly man. He was a man of integrity. He was a man who walked close to his God. He didn't need to be disciplined to set him on the right way because he was already walking in that way. And let's be clear that that this kind of simplistic thinking didn't just finish with Job's friends because Jesus also was confronted by it. Uh, John 9 verse 2, his disciples there asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And this kind of attitude continues right up to the present day, especially in the superficially religious, and we'll talk more about that later. Let's go on, though, to the second facet of the problem of these friends. That is that because of this, so they offer easy solutions to broken hearts. And this does happen. When we get into our head the idea that every mystery in life, every predicament, every problem can be answered by reference to our little book of principles and truths that we're sure of. And when we start to panic because we put our trust in these principles and yet things don't seem to quite fit, don't seem to quite work out, well, it can be so tempted at that point just to continue to give easy but too often unconvincing answers to broken hearts. I read somewhere some words written by a man named Joe Bailey during the course of Joe Bailey's life. Three of his children died. They lost one son during surgery when he was only 18 days old. They lost a second son, aged five, because of illness. And then a third son, aged 18, died after a sledging accident due to complications that were related to his haemophilia. And this is what he says. He says, I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved. I wished he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour and more and listened. When I said something, he answered briefly. He prayed simply and he left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. Let's try and take that in. Let's try and grasp that. We don't have to have all the answers. We never will have all the answers. And trying to pretend that we do, that just shows that that we're confused and mixed up and hurting inside. And this will only lead to us piling heart onto people who are already hurting and broken. We can't always give answers. We don't have them. And you know what? Answers so often aren't what people really need. What they need is for somebody to get alongside them, for somebody to love them and care for them and pray for them, be there for them. The third facet, I believe, of the friend's problem is that their legalism led to judgmentalism. You see, they've got this code worked out. 
This way of looking at life. This way of understanding life and of living out their faith. And when Job refused to buckle down and agree with them. When he answers their accusations and he tells them he hasn't been guilty of any sin, of any way that would justify what has happened to him, well, at that point, they've only got two options. They can either rethink their view of life and their view of faith, or they can write Job off. They can judge him. They can condemn him. And I have to tell you, legalists, aren't really known for open-minded reassessment. And so these men here do what comes naturally to them. And so we find that the Job who in the earlier chapters they had said was a caring man and a godly man, but who surely at some time must have sinned in some significant way, we find that he is now seen as a grievous sinner. Chapter 22, verse 5. Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? He's seen as someone who exploited the poor. Verse 6 there. You demanded security from your brothers for no reason. You stripped men of their clothing, leaving them naked, etc., etc. In short, Job, they say, Job is a hypocrite. He's a hypocrite. Verse 12 to 14 is not God in the heights of the heavens? And see how lofty are the highest stars. Yet you say, what does God know? Does he judge through such darkness? Thick clouds veil him, for he does not see us. Now you see, Job, we know, is guilty of none of these things. Job knew that, but most importantly, God knew that. Because remember what the Lord said of Job in Job 1 verse 8. He said that there is no one on the earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Job is no hypocrite by God's measure. Incidentally, I found an excellent definition of hypocrisy by Warren Wearsby. He says a hypocrite is not a person who, who fails to reach his desired spiritual goals because all of us fail in one way or another. A hypocrite is a person who doesn't even try to reach any goals, but he makes people think he has. His profession and his practice never meet. But isn't it interesting that these legalistic men, that they become judgmental, they become even angry when Job failed to cave in to their arguments. But do you see what the problem here is. Do you see what it is that lies there as their main problem? It is that at the heart of their faith, there stands a code, a rule book, rather than a relationship with a loving, gracious, compassionate God. And because of this, when they were faced with a situation of outrageous suffering, all they had to offer or empty words and statements rather than the love and compassion and understanding that Job so desperately needed and craved. But, you know, listen here, I, I want to warn you that this is a place, this is a state that it is all too easy for a believer to find themselves in. It's all too easy. And we get there by degrees. It happens slowly. We don't get there overnight. 
But some of the symptoms of this are when we are ruled by our assumptions. And you see, it's not just that we're clear on what we believe about, about the central doctrines of the faith. It's not that. No, but we've got every I dotted and every T crossed. We know what we believe and what we believe is right. No arguments. When we've got to, to that kind of place, when we've deluded ourselves into thinking that we've got it all together and everybody has to agree with me, when we refuse to even listen, to really listen to what somebody else is saying, when we get there, then we are in a dangerous place. Also, when our attempts to help people, to help get them back on the road, when the things that we say to people in suffering and in need regularly just leave people feeling guilty and ashamed, when there's nothing else, no trace of grace or forgiveness mingled in, when that's the case, when we've simply just added to their burden, then I would suggest that it's not just these men here that have a problem, but that we have a problem. But let's move on finally to look at the need, the need in Job's need. His need was, and we've touched on this already, was for sympathy. Even more, it was for empathy. His need was for understanding and comfort. And you know, the interesting thing here, as Job 2.11 tells us, is that this is actually what these men set out with the intention of bringing to him. It says there, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. Now, the word that, that we translate here, sympathize, means literally to shake the head or to rock the body back and forth. Now, at this time, doing this, this was a sign, this was a symbol of shared grief. What it signified is that you are doing all in your power to get alongside and to identify with the sufferer, that you were trying as hard as you could to put yourself in their shoes. And comfort, that means attempting to ease the deepest pain caused by tragedy or death. That's the definition. And what certainly this means is it means doing whatever you can, whatever is in your power at a practical level to try and ease the burden. Now, for seven days, and let's not downplay that, for seven days, Job's friends got so much right as they sat there in silence by his side. But then they spoiled it all, as too often we do by opening their mouths. Now, maybe I'm overstating things a little bit here because simply this particular incident demands it in this situation, but let me make it clear then that silence isn't always right. That there is a time to speak. The Bible makes it very clear that wise counsel is a wonderful thing. Proverbs 25, 11 and 12 says that a word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is a wise man's rebuke to a listening ear. You see, Job's friends didn't get it right. They didn't because they weren't right at heart with God in either heart or mind. But equally, to put the other side, wise counsel doesn't always say the things that we want, and it isn't always easy 
to listen to. Because it's always possible to find somebody to say the things that we want to. You can always find those people, but that won't be a wise person. The warnings of Proverbs 27 and 6 are, I think, so relevant. But it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. We need to make sure then, when we're hurting, that we're look- that when we're looking for counsel, that we are looking to the wise. And in the Bible, a wise person is someone who's walking close to the Lord, someone whose life bears the marks, the stamp of ongoing submission to God. And equally, when we're in that situation where we're giving counsel, we need to make sure, as far as we're able, that we're doing so wisely. So I would say, only speak at the right time. And seek God for that time. Seek him. Don't speak when you think it's right and force it open, force it, force your way in. Rather speak when God opens the door. Also only speak when you're in the the right place. And that is when you know that you're in right relationship with God. When you know you're living in close fellowship with him. When your heart is right and his love and power and wisdom is flowing into your life. And only speak when you've got something to say. Only speak when you know, I believe I have got insight into this situation from God, from his word. You see, all of this is so important. It's so important because people who are suffering need to find within the church, not people who would add to their burden with simplistic theological solutions, Or with counsel that simply just points the finger and that says that in some way this must all be your fault. Now what people are suffering need is people who because their hearts are full, because their hearts are full with God, full with the Spirit of God, full with the love and compassion of God, What they need is people who are ready to get alongside them, to get down in the dirt with them and share their burden. I want to finish tonight with a prayer that I found in Charles Swindle's wonderful little book on Job that I've got so much from. And I want to say to you, if we can, instead of just listening to this prayer, instead of that, pray it in our hearts and pray it with me then we will be so much closer to actually being the church God wants us to be. That we'll be so much closer to being a church that reflects his heart, his love, his life. Here's the prayer. Lord, help me today not to add to anyone's burdens. Help me to bring encouragement to others. When I can, Enable me to comfort. And when I don't know, help me to admit it. When I feel sorrow and sympathy for someone, help me to say that. And this is the line I love. Help me to lift the load of the hurting, not to add to their burden. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a people like this. Not a people who think that we have got it all together, but a people 
who are totally dependent on you, dependent on your grace, dependent on your wisdom, dependent on the leading of your spirit, dependent on your love and your compassion. Lord, help us to understand that we don't have to have all the answers. What we have to do is to point broken people to you that they might find healing and wholeness in you. Help us, in, Lord, help us, Lord, in this, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.